Welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus in a series I've entitled, Freed to Worship. Exodus describes many of the miraculous things God did to bring his chosen people out of bondage in Egypt and then to the promised land. Along the way, he revealed himself to the Israelites and taught them how to worship him. As New Testament believers, we don't follow the same pattern of worship as God instructed the Jews to worship him, but through their system, we learn a great deal about the God we worship. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Exodus, and let's explore what it means to be freed to worship. Again, we're in the book of Exodus, so turn to Exodus chapter 1, and we will be in Exodus tonight. I know some of you are a little freaked out about, you know, we didn't go straight into Exodus last time, but you'll get over it, all right? And thank you, thank you for reminding me to hit record. Um, Too late, you didn't do it. All right, so last time we spent quite a bit of time on the introduction, so we're not going to do that again tonight. Uh, But before we jump into the text, I would like to give you an outline for the book of Exodus. So we're going to break Exodus into three segments or parts. And the, the first part is... The first break in this text, or in the, cha- in the book of Exodus, is chapters 1 through 18, and I'm going to call that freed from bondage as, as we see the description of the Israelites being delivered from their bondage in Egypt. And then in chapters 19 through 24, we have freed to obedience. And so, now what did you just do? There we go. Um, and so um, after, after we you know, are freed, then God calls us to obedience. We see that described to us in those chapters. And then chapter 25 to the end, chapter 40, we have freed to worship. And so Exodus opens by telling us that Jacob and his family were only 70 people when they ended up in Egypt. And that changed dramatically over Uh, the 400 years between Genesis and Exodus. So let's pick it up in verse 7 of Exodus, chapter 1, and it says this, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them, literally millions of them. Um, Estimates are between 2 and 3 million and some suggest even more than that. At the end of Genesis, Joseph was the second most powerful man in Egypt. Um, Through God's providence and miraculous power, Joseph went from slave to prisoner to savior of Egypt. He literally saved Egypt from the famine that was coming. Over the centuries, people forgot what Joseph had done for Egypt and God's power um, th- exercise through him. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. People are like that, aren't they? You know, they, that, they, we, we are a forgetful creature. Uh, something radical happened. God will do something radical. And then before too long, something else will happen and we're crying in our milk. Oh, no. You know, the sky is falling. God never helps me after he just saved you from something. Our own history, history in this country is proof of that. You know, we, you know, the history of our, there are men and women in the history of our country that were heroes. They did amazing things. The creation of this country is a remarkable account, but people are forgetting it or they're rewriting it to be something less than that. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a terrible thing to have our heroes of the past vilified. Um, not a good thing. It's not good for our country. It's not good for our history. It does no good at all. Um, this new Pharaoh comes and he doesn't know what Joseph has done or what you know, these Israelites and the connection between Joseph and the Israelites. He has no idea about that. Verse 9. 
And he, he said, this is Pharaoh, said to his people, look, the people of Israel are more and mightier than we. So they've you know, populated so fast that their population has exceeded that of the Egyptians. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. You know, this king is using, this king slash pharaoh is using words of paranoia and insecurity and, you know, you know, looking toward the future and wondering what, you know, what's going to go on here with these guys. I taught through the, the series of, you know, the book of James a few years ago, and, and I talked about three reasons for trials, and, and there's a similar thing that happens here as this conflict is arising you know, between Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and the people of Israel, who are just going about doing, you know, what they're doing. They're not really, they're not trying to be enemies of Egypt. They're not trying, they're not conspiring to take over the country, any of those things, but he's all paranoid about it. And so there's a conflict is brewing. And so in that series, I described three different um, reasons for trials, but the same is true of conflict. And so the first type is cause and effect. Conflict happens because we did something to cause it. You know, that when we do something, we, you know, we, we make a mistake, we say something wrong to someone, we make a poor choice or whatever, we cause conflict. And Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And so, you know, some conflict comes because it's a consequence of our own sins, of our own poor choices. Um, though it could also be the consequence of somebody else's choices, somebody else's sin. And so one of the reasons is a cause and effect. Somebody has done something, either I have or somebody around me has done something, and it's produced conflict. It happens. Anybody ever experienced conflict in their life? This morning, maybe today, maybe it happens. You know, you put two sinners in close proximity to one another and stuff happens. So that's the reality. The second type is spiritual conflict. You know, these conflicts that, that arise out of the fact that we're children of God. And, and the conflict can come from the world though it's always a spiritual thing, which means there's a spiritual background behind it. Um, and, it's, and it's part of the consequence of the fall and with the you know, forces of Satan all around us. In Genesis 3.15, it says this, and I, will pour, put a, and I will put enmity, slow down, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God when he is judging or cursing Satan. Now this applies literally to Christ, but extends to all who are called by his name. So if you're a child of, of, of God, then you have to understand that we are, we are at enmity with the devil. I mean, he is our enemy. He will always be our enemy and nothing is gonna change that until we go to be with Jesus. The devil hates all of humanity. Whether they're believers or not, he hates all of humanity because they are made in the image of God and they're created to bear his light out of the world, even if they don't know that. He especially hates Christians because we shine the light of Jesus Christ out of the world, out into his darkness. The devil is trying to promote darkness, trying to push darkness out of the world, and he hates that. So that's the, the first two types. The third type is the spiritually mysterious conflict. These are conflicts that we can't really explain. They just happen. We don't, we can't think of anything we've done. It didn't necessarily come from something that somebody else done, just this something, there's some conflict going on. Now it's not mysterious to God and it, it fits into one of the first two types, but we just can't figure out which one it is. So, so that's the case here. The Hebrews, they're just going along doing doing life. They're not doing anything. They're not doing anything wrong. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh is turning against them. And, and they would look at it and say, well, what is, what is the deal here? Why is, he, why is he upset with us? Well, there is a reason for it. This is a spiritual conflict. 
and God is the author of it. That's something important to keep in mind. God is causing this to happen. It doesn't, and he's, and he's, he's causing Pharaoh to turn against the Hebrews. And he's, and he's, it doesn't mean that he caused the Pharaoh to be a jerk, but he just made sure that the jerk showed up when he needed him. So, so he's taking Pharaoh's natural tendencies and then using them to accomplish his will. He used his natural jerkness to accomplish his will, to set his people free and to display his power to the rest of the world. That's his goal, is to display his power and to set his people free. See, God is doing something that required the new king to be hostile. He needed him to, re- to act this way. Now, now, he was getting the people of Israel ready to leave, getting them, getting them ready to go. They had settled in Egypt, and they were flourishing. If God hadn't allowed this new king to be hostile toward them, they may never have left Egypt. They may have stayed there forever. Well, that was a problem because Egypt was not the promised land, and God had made promises to them in the land of Canaan, not in Egypt. Now, there's a spiritual, spiritual truth in all of this for, for us as well. If we are happy and comfortable in our Egypt, whatever that might be, then, then we're not going to long for the life that God promised us. God promised us something. He promised us a land. He promised us a, a life, a, a certain kind of a life. But if we get too comfortable living in the world, which is what Egypt is always a picture of, living in this, this place of, of ease and whatever, then God might bring something uncomfortable into your life to drive you to the life that he desires for you. Now, that doesn't mean that every time something uncomfortable comes into your life, it's God trying to move you out. Sometimes bad things just happen, right? You know, getting back, going back to trials. You know, trials happen for lots of reasons. One of those reasons is to is to change us, not to move us. Sometimes trials happen to move us out of a place. Sometimes they're just meant to make us more like Christ. And so, what we have to do is we have to seek the Lord, seek the Lord, and and wait for Him to tell you what you what am I doing with this? Okay, this is what's going on. I don't know why it's going on, and I don't know how to respond to it. So we keep seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord. We seek counsel. We seek the, the fellowship with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We allow them to minister truth into our life. And through that, we can come to know what it is that God's trying to do. So here we have this new king, this Pharaoh. He thinks he's wise enough to deal with these pesky Hebrews, and his wisdom is going to backfire on him in a big way. In 1 Corinthians 1.19, it says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That's the reality of the wise of this world. The wise people of this world aren't really wise. They think they're wise, but um, their wisdom will be brought to nothing. So this new king is scheming and planning. He is a picture for us of man in rebellion against God. And man in rebellion against God has always got ideas, always got schemes, always got plans, always got ideas on how he can get ahead. And, and, and we have to understand that you cannot resist God and prosper in any way. The two of those are just incompatible with one another. He is sovereign and he will frustrate the plans of those who are doing it in a way that's opposed to what he wants. He's God, right? He gets, he gets to decide how things happen. He gets to make the rules. And, and, and sometimes we don't like that. We don't like the way it happens, but he's still God, so he gets to decide that. Now, we should note, we should always note, that just because our plans do not prosper doesn't mean God didn't frustrate them they just may have been dumb plans and so you know we just got to keep that in mind too though it doesn't hurt to humble yourself before god and ask him hey are you frustrating me here or it was just a, just a dumb plan so because uh, i don't know about you i've made a couple dumb plans in my life and 
you know. So, so, so Pharaoh comes up with a plan. Here's his plan, verse 11. Therefore he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. So he makes them slaves, and, and, it, and it's, not, it's not gentle service. Anywhere you see these taskmasters, these, these, these uh, guys that were um, commanding the forced labors, you always see them with clubs or whips and all the, the imagery that you see of them. So anyway, so it, 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 these, these guys are making it hard on the Hebrews. Well, it's meant to beat them down, crush their spirit, to weaken them physically, and then ultimately to reduce their numbers. But it didn't work. It didn't work the way they intended it to. So verse 12, verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, meaning they, they really they worked them hard. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And the harder they made life for the Hebrews, the more they seem to multiply. It's one of the historical truths of, of the people of God. If you persecute them, they grow. <laughs> it's one of those weird truths that, you know, that per, when persecution begins, the church grows. You know, be, one of the first pictures we see of that is in the book of Acts, in a couple of places in the book of Acts, where, where you know, the Jews started persecuting the Christians and spread them out around the rest of the known world, and churches started popping up everywhere, and those churches produced more and more believers. And so it's one of those, one of those realities. You know, you know then um, when Paul uh, was in Thessalonica, um, they tried to arrest him. And this is what they said in Acts chapter 17, in verse 6, it says this, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Thessalonica is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, and yet, you know, the news of these believers have, have upset the whole world in Thessalonica and the area around them, literally the whole Roman Empire. And so, pretty radical time. So, so Pharaoh thinks he can persecute the Hebrews out of existence. Well, we will see clearly uh, by doing what he did, Pharaoh, in fact, caused the Hebrews to do what God wanted them to do. And, um, and one of those things was to continue to multiply. You know, he was afraid they were going to leave. In fact, that's exactly what God is getting ready to do. He's getting ready to, to, to get them to go. And so, you know, and so the reality is, is that, you know, that, you know, God's, he, he had, Pharaoh has his plan. God's got his, his own plan. And guess whose plan wins? The reality is, is that God uses Pharaoh's plan to accomplish his plan. And that's one of those weird things that God does that's, that's pretty amazing. The, rea the Hebrews are so comfortable in Egypt God knows that he has to make it uncomfortable for them, for them to want to leave. You know, there's evidence of that truth about, um, about a thousand years after this. You know, that after the exodus, the people of Judah were sent into exile into Babylon. And, and God works in the life of the Persian king Cyrus to release them from their captivity so then go back to the promised land, go back to Judah. And, and not all of them left. Some of them, a large number of them, stayed in Babylon because, after all, what had happened in Judah had been wiped out. And so they would have had to start all over again. And they had these existing lives and flourishing businesses and homes and who knows whatever else out there. And to go back home, go back to Judah, that means starting all over again. And many of them said, no, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Better to stay in the place of captivity than to start over in the place of God's promises is what they were thinking. And that is a problem in the lives of some Christians as well. Christ has set them free from bondage, from the bondage of sin. But then they stay in the place of sin. They stay 
connected to those sins that they were practicing before because it's more comfortable in that place than it is to leave and to start over and to do something different. Believers who are addicted to alcohol, drugs, sex, are, are choosing to stay in the place of bondage. I'm saying believers who are addicted are choosing to stay in that place of bondage when God can set them free if they choose to. Believers who continue in sexual immorality after being saved are making a choice to stay in spiritual bondage. Jesus said this in John 8, 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Someone who chooses a lifestyle of sin, a believer who chooses a lifestyle of sin is choosing to live in the bondage that Jesus died to set them free from. And that's not the life that God has for them. And it's not just those, those big sins. It could be you know, things like fear or worry or anger or resentment, all sorts of areas of bondage that we can have, unforgiveness, these areas of bondage that we can have in our lives that Jesus set us free from, and then we choose to do it. And you know, you don't understand, Pastor, I can't forgive that person. Nope, that's not right. Why is that not right? Because all things are possible through Christ Jesus. I can do some things that make me feel better when I want to through Christ who gives me strength. No, all things are possible. I can do all things. The only way to be truly free is to separate ourselves from the places of bondage and to move into the life that Jesus promised. So that, that tactic didn't work. So Pharaoh tries another tactic in verse 15. And it says, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. That's her Hebrew midwives. Midwife is a woman that helps women deliver babies. Of just think, that was for the guys. You know, you ladies already knew that, but that was just for the guys. <laughs> of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and, and see them on the birth stools, imagine that being how you deliver babies. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, then she shall live. This is wicked, evil. One of the signs of the end times and of a fallen mankind is a disregard for the value of human life. When human life is disregarded and treated as no more than rubbish. I was listening to Ted Cruz on a podcast this morning and he's talking about the stuff going on on the southern border. And, and he says that is these, these traffickers who are, who are bringing people across, they don't care about the people they're bringing across. They, they are just, they're, just, they're just a source of income for them. And so if somebody has a problem trying to get across, they just abandon them, leave them. You know, the ranchers down in, in Texas are finding pregnant women dead, lying out there because nobody, you know, because they just abandoned them there. Small children, old people, just if you can't do it, they just leave you there. They've already got your money. They don't care. And, and anybody that doesn't care about that doesn't care either. How desperate must this pharaoh be? to start killing newborn baby boys. How depraved must they be to think it's okay to kill babies because they might be inconvenient? That should be a wake-up call for us. Or a threat for the future. How far in the future? Well, at least 20 years in the future. And think about this for a minute. For this plan of his to work, they're going to have to keep doing it until there are no more boys left. Until all the males of the Hebrews are gone. That's 40, 60, 80 years of killing baby boys. Yikes. Can't imagine how many 
hundreds of thousands of babies that would include. That's seriously messed up. And yet we live in a country where, well, that seems to be an everyday thing. Um, it's pretty messed up in this country too, pretty depraved. It's interesting to note, and one of the things that I note in this is that the two midwives are named, but the Pharaoh is not. That's one of those things that always fascinated me. You never hear the name of this Pharaoh, but here these two midwives are named. Just a thought, something to meditate on. You know, the, my thought on that is God's people are important to him. His enemies are not. We don't need to know his enemies' names because they're just not important. Well, this new plan is not going to work either. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. This is the first recorded act of civil disobedience in the Bible. So just for you people look for those kinds of things. The Pharaoh was the law of the land. When he said something, that was the law. And yet, they chose to obey God, reverencing him as the highest law. And that's a, good, that's a good sample for us as well, that we should obey the laws of the land. Romans 13 tells us to do that. Obey the laws of the land. And, and we should be faithful in doing that. We should pay our taxes. We should obey the speed limits most of the time. We should you know, do, do those right things. And, 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 and the only time we're exempted from that is when the laws of the land go against the laws of God. And that happened in Acts chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. He says this, Did we, this is, these are the religious leaders speaking to, um, to the disciples, uh, uh, Peter and, and um, the others. He says, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his, this name, the name of Jesus, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, yeah, because you killed him. But Peter and the other apostles, that was my commentary in case you're wondering, I added that. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So these religious Jews wanted them to stop telling people about Jesus. Well, that's a problem that created a conflict between what they were being told by the religious leaders and what Jesus had told them. Jesus told them in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I have a question for you. Can you preach the gospel without Jesus' name? The answer is no. If you leave out Jesus, you don't have a gospel. There is no gospel without Jesus. You can't preach it without his name. I love the fact that God uses these two Hebrew women to foil Satan's plan. You know, Satan has his plan to, to, you know, to kill all these babies. Um, and it doesn't work completely, but at least it thwarts it for a period of time. Um, so, so these Hebrew women refused to yield to Pharaoh's wicked plan. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, weaklings, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. You know, this is one of those odd scriptures that, that, you know, it's really hard sometimes to, to wrap your mind around and gives people trouble. Because as far as I can tell here, they're lying. They're lying to Pharaoh, which we're going to see in Exodus chapter 20 is considered a sin. It's one of the big ones, one of the big 10. And, and no judgment of right or wrong is given here in the text. And so it's one of those things we're just kind of left to wonder about. And we can have commentaries, we can have conversations, we can argue about it if you want after we're done here. Uh, but it is just what it is. Verse 20, especially if we see what happens in verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. So even though Pharaoh's trying to wipe them all out, then, then you know God is still multiplying them. Verse 21, and so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them you know lying aside god blesses these two women these midwives and he blesses them by giving them families or in essence giving them children you know it makes me wonder what kind of you know what they have boys or girls 
And, you know, that's a whole another little thing. We don't know. Um, it is what it is. So first, Pharaoh tries to recruit. The, he, he, he turns up the heat. He sends his taskmasters out after him, make life miserable for them. And then he, he recruits these midwives. That doesn't work. And so he goes back to his people with a new plan, verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Again, pretty wicked stuff. If they were to find out a male child was born to the Hebrews, they were to cast him alive into the River Nile, where he would, at the very least, drown and, and might also be food for the many critters that are running around the Nile River. You know, this, all, this should remind us of another king who did something similar to this, something as similarly wicked. Upon hearing that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, King Herod had all the boys two years younger and younger killed in and around the city of Bethlehem. You know, God saved Jesus out of that situation by sending his family down to Egypt. You know, Satan's plans to stop the Messiah were doomed at every step. They have been doomed at every step. There's nothing Satan can do to stop the Messiah from accomplishing his will, his work. And so we can take comfort in that, even though we, we have to endure uh, difficult things and trials and tribulations and hardship and all these different things. The reality is, is, you know, even when Satan attacks us, ultimately he can't thwart God's plan for us. You know, the only one that can get in the way of God's plan for us is us. And if we, you know, play along, then we don't have a problem with it or not problem with that. So, so this, this plan of his is going to take an interesting twist. Um, so the people of Israel in Egypt, we're going to move on to chapter 2 here because we still have some time. Praise the Lord. Um, God has blessed them. They've grown in this, into this large population. And so, so the Pharaoh's afraid that they're going to freak out and do something. And so, um, so he, he enslaves the Hebrews. And then he, and he tries to you know, get the midwives to kill the boys. And then ultimately he gets the, uh, his people to kill any male children that they find. The Hebrews are in hard bondage and Pharaoh has ordered the death of all Hebrew newborn boys. Then we move on to chapter two. Then, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife, as wife, a daughter of Levi. So this man, um, and we, we read later on actually in, in Exodus 6.20, it says, Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of life of Amram were 137. We also know that they had a sister named Miriam. Um, so, the, so we find out what the name them. A little, the... the the, the chapter, this chapter is going to focus on the providence of God. And, and it displays God's operation in the background of humanity as humanity is moving along. And as God is moving humanity along a, a very particular pathway to accomplish his will in the world. And God's providential work is often invisible to us as we're experiencing it. We see, we may not notice that God's hand is at work. And even when we become aware at it, it's usually because we're looking back in our life and see how God has, has done things to, to carry us along. So most Christians can look back and see God's fingerprints on some part of their life or, or some segment or some process that God has done as he arranges things in their life to reach a certain destination for them. This is true in the life here of, of, this, of this woman from the tribe of Levi. Notice her husband is from the tribe of Levi. She's from the tribe of Levi. That was very common to marry within the tribe. Even though they're in Egypt and they're not in the promised land, they don't have the promise of the division of the lands, it was very common to marry within your own tribe. All of this is going on when life is really hard for the, the Hebrews. But life keeps going on. Things keep happening. 
Now, we might be able to re- relate to that. I don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, either your life is really hard right now or you have just come out of something really hard or maybe something really hard is coming or maybe you know somebody. You know, life just sometimes there's really hard stuff happens in life. And, you know, and, and if you live long enough, you're going to experience something really hard. And, you know, the, the level of our maturity determines how hard it feels. You know, the reality is, is when we, when, we, when we grow and mature in our faith, the hard things don't feel as hard as they did when we were less spiritually mature than we are today. But they're still hard. And whenever it's hard, we, we, we have to stop and we have to examine ourselves and look for obvious sin in our lives. We got we to check, okay, am I, is life hard because I'm blowing it here somewhere? You know, am I, am I doing something that's bringing this hardship into my life? Or, or am, I, am I connected to somebody who's doing something wrong? And that's why, you know, if you got you know, somebody that's not you know, following God, then, then you might experience the consequences of their rebellion, their sin. And, and yet, you, we, may, we may not ever get an answer to why life is hard. It just is. And in those times, we must trust in the fact that God loves us and that God is sovereign, that God is providentially working even when we can't see it, even when we don't know what he's doing or why he's doing it, there's always something he's doing. And, and, and he is doing something, we just can't see it. And that we have to rest in that. Okay, God, this is hard. And you know, you can tell God that. Did you know you can tell God that when life is hard? Just say, God, life is hard right now and I don't know why it's hard. And, and just, but I trust you, I love you, I will, I know you're doing something. I would like to see it, but if I don't, I'm still going to trust you. Verse 2, continuing on. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. You know, one of the things I, I regularly encourage you to do is to try to put yourself into the account, into the story, especially these, these historical accounts or these narratives that we run across in Scripture. You try to put yourself into it as you're reading, as you're studying. What would it have been like to, to be living in Egypt? Now, this will be easier for the women to relate to than the guys, but try to imagine the day that Jochebed realized that she was pregnant. Living in a time and a culture where the reality is, is that, you know, 50-50 chance you're going to get a boy. And knowing that you're going to, you, there's a chance that when that boy is born, you know, the, the Egyptian police are going to come and take your baby. Imagine carrying that child for nine months and not knowing if it is a boy or a girl and not knowing what might happen. No sonograms back then. You know, there's, you know, the whole, you know, weird things that people do to know what gender it is and they're right about 50% of the time. That was like a joke. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, they had to wait until the baby was born to find out it was a boy. But when he was born, he was a beautiful child. Something about this child was just different than, than what they might have imagined. You know, to find out that you have this child, this boy, and he, he, he doesn't have a future. He's doomed right out of the womb, right out of the, right out of the, you know, right out of mom, he's doomed. The book of Hebrews tells us a little bit about these parents, Amram and Jochebed, in Hebrews eleven twenty three says this, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So they hid Moses for three months, but they knew they couldn't hide him forever. So verse three, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dubbed, daubed them, sorry, with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. She knew she couldn't keep him. And so she puts him in this basket this, and she makes it waterproof and she sets it in the reeds. And then she just leaves him there. And 
And she, we don't know what she was thinking. We don't know what she was imagining. We don't know what she was hoping for. Uh, obviously, she was hoping that some miraculous thing would happen and her child would live. But chances are she was not expecting what did happen. Um, in verse 5 comes this. Then the, Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Again, we've got to think this through. This is Pharaoh's daughter who commanded that all the boys be thrown in the river to be killed? Her dad. And so, you know, she, she sees this Hebrew boy. And she knows what her dad wants to happen here, knows that her dad wants this child to die, and yet she has compassion for him. She's, she is the daughter of Pharaoh, which makes her a princess of Egypt. And she decides that she's going to do something different. Now, she could have just closed that basket right up and just pushed it out in the river and walked away from it. But God had a different plan. God had a plan that included this Pharaoh's daughter. It's all God's providence. And that's, that's one of those radical things about God. The things that, you know, that, you know, that do we, we can't know for certain what Jochebed believed was going to happen when she put that basket out there in the river but God had a plan. Any number of people could have discovered that child, right? Or a crocodile could have discovered it. Who knows? What, or a hippo, maybe. Whatever is running around out there. Yeah, but God arranged for the princess to come to bathe at the precise time that that child was in the river. And then the baby's sister, you know, this would be Miriam, reacts to this in a very cunning manner she says verse 7 then his sister said to pharaoh's daughter shall i go and call a nurse for you from the hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you and pharaoh's daughter said to her go and the maiden went and called the child's mother well this makes sense the pharaoh's daughter obviously can't nurse her she's not the mother of the child she probably hasn't had a child herself and so she goes and says go get one of the hebrew women you know and and you know huh just happened to have one handy that's just had a baby and is ready to nurse this child. So again, God, God arranged a, a, uh, a wet nurse for this child. And it's a powerful lesson for parents in that. Trust God and give your children to him and trust that he's going to take care of them. And then he will give them back to you when it's the right time in the right way. And so she hires, the princess hires this, the, the baby's mother to be a wet nurse to the baby. I do love how she, how she might have communicated that to her father. You know, I, you know, some of these things we wish, I wish we had more information about. Oh, dad, by the way, I found this Hebrew boy in the river and I've hired a you know, Hebrew woman to wet nurse him. I'm going to raise him as my own. Uh, oh, okay. I, I don't know how that works, but it obviously did. Verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Hiring a wet nurse was not an uncommon thing to do in that time, especially for the wealthy woman, women of that time. It was just easier for them not to have to you know, bother with nursing a child. I'm sure there's, never mind, I'm not going to get all into that. Uh, but this arrangement would have, could have lasted about three years. That would have been a natural period of time until the baby was weaned. Um, and so that could have been as close to as, uh, as about three years. And so at about three, the baby, Moses, goes to live with the princess. And she names him Moses, which means drawn out because she drew him out of the river. Now, we don't know anything about the time that he started to live with um, the princess until the next account. In fact, there's a 37-year gap between verses 10 and 11. So it just jumps from, you know, him being, you know, weaned, and then verse 11 comes in, and he pops into the scene again. Verse 11, 
Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, he was about 40 at this point, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now it's not clear to us, and, and, and you know, the, the Disney movies, you know, aside, they don't really tell the real story, um, but, the, the, you know, we don't, we don't know why Moses has waited 37 years to reconnect with his people. It, it, there's probably a reason, but we don't know what it is. And so he's been raised as an Egyptian. He's been raised to learn the things of Egypt, not of his people. So whether or not he had any contact with them, we don't know. But he's at 37 years later that he eventually he's, he's going to see them and he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. Now, beating a slave was neither uncommon or illegal. It was normal in the life of slaves in that time. If a slave was giving you any trouble, you just give him a good beating. I'm pretty sure there's probably a church ministry, a church ministry for a good beating every now and then. I know a couple of guys who could probably use one. None of the ladies, of course, because they're so awesome. All right, all of you watching online, just hang on. The slides are not going to keep up, so just forget it. So here we are. We have, we have Moses goes out and sees a Hebrew being beaten again. It's not a big deal in that culture. You know, we look at it, be a big deal. Anybody beating like that, you know, you don't do that with your employees, right? You know, th that's not just something, something people do on a regular basis. But in that culture, it wasn't that big deal. So Moses responds very aggressively, verse 12. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Killing a slave, that would not be, that would be frowned upon. But it wouldn't, depending on who you are, wouldn't really get you in trouble. It might be a financial you know, cost. You might have to pay for the slave but it wouldn't get you any trouble. Killing an Egyptian, that's a big deal. That'll get you killed. And so, so as you read verse 12, you get a sense that Moses thought he was getting away with murder. He may have thought that he was delivering his people. In fact, he even says something to that effect, that he was delivering his people by doing this. Um, and, um, and even though he buried the evidence, the crime is not going to stay buried. Verse 13. And when he had went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, that'd be the, the man, the, the, the other Hebrew, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. So instead of appreciating what Moses, what yeah, what Moses had done on their behalf, they reject him and oppose him. Turn to Numbers chapter 16, number 16. And we're going to look at an account in Numbers. That's a couple of books to the right. Numbers or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Numbers 16. Keep your figure in Exodus because we're going back. So we have this account here of... of Oh, excuse me, Moses, who later, who does lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, and, and he thought that he was doing something on, on their behalf, and yet they are opposing him. That pattern doesn't stop after he leads them out of Egypt, out of bondage. They continue to resist him as their leader. God's going to call Moses to be their leader and, and to do it in a very profound way, in ways that he didn't work with other people. And he called them to be a judge over the people, but they regularly rebel against him. And so here in number 16, we see one of the more famous of these accounts in, in number 16, starting in verse one. Now, Korah, the son of Ishar, sorry, son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, of the sons of Eliab, 
and on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy every one of them and the lord is among them why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the lord and so hey moses who do you think you are they're saying to him what makes you special well hold on god's going to tell them so when moses heard it he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all of his company saying tomorrow morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. You, speaking to Korah, take too much upon yourselves, you sons of of Levi. So he says, basically saying, let God decide who is right and who is wrong here. And he tells the ringleaders to, you know, and there are 250 followers, be 250 followers to bring incense burners and to make an offering to the Lord. Jump down to verse 28. And Moses, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. And Moses, it's not, I'm, it's not about me. I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm doing this because God told me to do it. I'm doing this because God led me to do it. Verse 29, if these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. I mean, these guys die of old age or however they might die. They don't die from some, some spectacular way. Then, then God didn't send me. Verse 30, but if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and with all the men with Korah, with all their goods, so they're so they and all those who are with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. There's 34. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow up us up also. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So I would like to say that was the last. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine, you know, these guys come up and say, hey, Moses, you're not as, you, you're just too big for your britches. And, and Moses, okay, okay, let's let God decide who's right and who's wrong here. And, you know, you know if, if any of us had this conversation, we could have that conversation for years and not actually get anywhere. But Moses says, okay, let's figure it out. And he says, if, if, if you know, if, if, they just, if these guys just die natural causes, then no big deal. But if the earth opens up and swallows them, then you know that I'm, I'm, the, you know, I'm what I'm supposed to be. I don't know about you. I've prayed for some earth opening up and swallowing people sometimes. <laughs> Just know, if you come against me, I, I might be, you know, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> oh, I'm messed up, sorry. <laughs> Turn back to Exodus chapter 2. You know, God... God's calling on our lives doesn't mean that everyone around us is going to get it or agree with it or be happy about it or cooperate with it. That's the reality. Being a pastor of the church, you know, I, I have, I have, I've dealt with things like this before. I've dealt with, I've, I've had people tell me that I should not be the pastor of the church, you know, and I keep telling Randy, be quiet and sit down. <laughs> No, kidding, kidding. Randy loves me. I love Randy. But I've had people tell me and tell me that, you know, I am, I, you know, you're the problem, Pastor. You need to get out of the way. Let somebody else do it. One problem with that. God told me to do it. I, I, you know, for me to not do it was for me to be in rebellion and disobedience to God. 
and I and so and so you know I know that you you know you cannot be in the will of God because I God has made it very clear to me what His will is in this, and I'm I and I try to be very gentle and tell them I'm not praying for the earth to open up and swallow them. Sometimes I might though. It's hard. You know, it's not unusual. For the people that God has called us to minister to, whether you're a pastor or just a person, you know, a lay person, the, God's called us to minister to somebody, somewhere. You know, if you're in a family, he's called you to minister to your family. And it's not uncommon for those people not to cooperate with you, not to agree with your calling, not to agree that God has a plan for your life that involves you doing something for them that should lead them to Christ because they ultimately may not want to go there. You know, often when a, you know, you know, ministering to men over the years, there have been times where a man wakes up and gets it. You know, all of a sudden, just like, it's weird because men are slow often to get it. But when they do, they often jump on hard. It, they, when, they, when they start going, they go hard. And that's not uncommon because that's kind of the nature of men. But unfortunately, sometimes, you know, the, some of the greatest resistance he finds are within his marriage and his family. And that's also not uncommon. So Moses experiences this pushback from the people. Oh, look at that. We're out of time. That he's ministering to. And he's trying to help them. And, and, and you know, and here, here he is. And we're going to stop before verse 15 because we're going to come back to it. But he's, he's stuck now. Now what does he do? He's thought he's done this good thing where he's, you know, he's rescued, you know, his, one of his people. You know, he went a little extreme, a little over the top, murdering the Egyptian. But he did it. And now they're turning against him. And not only that, but word is getting out, will get out that he, in fact, did kill this Egyptian. And so he will eventually run for his life. So we're going to stop there and then we'll pick it up in verse 15 next week. And then we will get into chapter three after that. So uh, be prepared for that. Um, again, for those of you that watch this. Oh, look, that's frozen up now, too. Great. I'm going to not be frustrated and throw this across the room. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll uh, pray that God helps me to figure this out by next week. Heavenly Father, we come, and, and we do thank you, Lord, for your word. And, and while technology is, um, it, it can be a blessing, it can also be a curse. And tonight, it's try to be a curse more than anything else and so lord god we know that your word's going to go out we know that your your name is going to be lifted up we know that lord that nothing can stop your word from going forth and we're going to continue to try to to uh, promote and to describe your word your glory your peace your hope your love grace mercy all of the all of the things that you are in faith through the name of jesus christ by the power of the holy spirit based upon the word of god and we're going to keep doing it lord no matter what comes no matter what obstacles get in the way no matter what hindrances try to stop us from doing it lord god we're going to keep doing it and so we pray lord that lord you would use um, these humble teachings to bring glory to your name that others would be others would be edified and built up and Lord, I pray for those who tried to sign on and couldn't. I pray that you would, you would help them not to be frustrated and that you would give them the peace that surpasses all understanding and that you would help them to watch it later if they, show, if they should desire that. I thank you, Lord, for all that you do. I lift up these people that are here today. I thank you for them. And I pray, Lord, for your special blessing upon them. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our freedom to worship God in the book of Exodus. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there's anything we can do to help you with that, please don't hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to connect with you is in the area of prayer. 
please let us know how we can be praying with you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus. Jesus.